Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. There is a branch of Christianity unfamiliar to many Christians, although you might have had a little exposure to it. It's ancient, it's historic, it has some strength, but it also has some ideas that are foreign to a biblical version of Christianity. I'm talking about Eastern Orthodoxy. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to answer the question, why I am not Eastern Orthodox, Dr. Jordan Cooper. He's executive director of Just and Sinner. He's president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including Christification, A Lutheran Approach to Theosis, and creator and host of a YouTube video, titled Five Reasons I Am Not Eastern Orthodox. Dr. Cooper, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. I think maybe the average layperson Christian in America may not have had any exposure to Eastern Orthodoxy beyond maybe my big fat Greek wedding or something like that. (laughs) How would you introduce this significant branch of Christianity to that person? Yeah, sure. I think Eastern Orthodoxy is a bit mysterious to a lot of people. And there's a reason for that, because it is very different. Also, Eastern Orthodoxy has never been the kind of predominant Christian culture within the United States. But people do generally know if you say, you know, Greek Orthodox, you know, and like you said, you know, my big fat Greek wedding, that's probably the general connection that people to have is it has something to do with maybe Russia and Greece, if you don't know much else. But the Eastern Orthodox tradition is a very ancient Christian tradition, and it essentially encapsulates the Eastern part of Christianity since really the early church. So there have been kind of east-west divides. That has to do with a lot of things. Some of it is language in the Roman Empire. The western part of the empire spoke Latin and the eastern spoke Greek. And because of that and political things and the formation of the Byzantine Empire, there was really a kind of slow division that started to develop and then increase between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. So what you think of as the Eastern Orthodox Church today has its roots in what is the ancient Eastern Church. But the split between East and West officially happened in 1054 AD, where there was kind of a a mutual excommunication between the Pope or the Bishop of Rome and then the Bishop of of Constantinople. So that's when the churches split apart. So at at that point, the church officially becomes kind of something different from the Western church, that it's specifically separated from the Western church. So when we're talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, if you're not familiar with what that is, it is the Eastern part of the church, and it is something that is very broad. It's very multifaceted. And in some ways, there isn't a particularly like really easy way to define, here's what Eastern Orthodox theology is. There's no singular 
catechism. Like we have our book of Concord, right? As you can see, this is exactly what Lutherans believe. Rome has the catechism of the Catholic Church. So you can look, look up exactly what they believe. But the East, it doesn't function in quite the same way. There are some regional catechisms and there are things that are written, but nothing that is official teaching of the whole church in quite the same way. So it can be a bit mysterious in some ways. You kind of have to take the East kind of topic by topic and even region by region to really understand it. What are the strengths of orthodoxy? Yeah, there's some things that are really wonderful about Eastern orthodoxy, especially because the culture is different from what we usually think of as, as Western culture, at least in kind of Western Europe and the United States. And because it comes from a different culture, that means that the weaknesses we have will not always be the weaknesses they have. And the same is true the other way around. So some things that I think are, are beneficial about the Eastern Church, I think things that they do well. One is, and here's a strong similarity with Lutherans, is that they tend to value mystery really significantly, unlike the development of Roman Catholic scholasticism, which, and that's not all bad either, but there are some things that I think Rome tried to answer in the Middle Ages that really don't need an answer. And Lutherans, you know, we're very comfortable with some questions and saying, I don't exactly know how that happened. So, for example, take the Lord's Supper. The Roman tradition has a very clearly worked out philosophical system about how it is that the bread and the Eucharist becomes the body of Christ. But as Lutherans, we say it is the bread and it is the body of Christ, but we leave it as a mystery. The East is very similar to us in that way, where they're willing to accept mystery and not answer a lot of questions where you know, where we don't really need uh, an answer. God hasn't revealed that answer to us. So th that's a, probably the area that the East connects with Lutherans kind of probably pretty uniquely. And some of that has to do with their Christology, the way they view the relationship between the two natures of Jesus. There tends to be a view among Eastern writers that, that emphasize the unity of Christ in a way that is consistent with how Lutherans speak about the unity of Christ as well. I think the other big strength of Eastern Orthodoxy is that unlike really all the Western churches, <laughs> and I think this is part of the attraction that a lot of people have to them, is that they don't have the same kind of struggles with the desire to depart from their tradition, to insert all sorts of aspects of you know, American pop culture into their worship. So Eastern worship is very reverent, it's very traditional, and it has not changed much. So while within the Lutheran world and within Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism and all the other more high church traditions that you find within the Western church, we're kind of battling against some departures from our liturgical traditions, but the East doesn't really have those fights. So some of your objections to the Orthodox approach are going to take quite a bit of explanation. The first one being that fundamentally you think that their approach to theology is inadequate. It's historically called the apophatic method or apophatic theology. What is it? And it does take a bit of explanation because it's just kind of so different from how we approach theology. The apophatic method essentially is a way of doing theology that says that you primarily define God in terms of what he is not. The idea is that God is He's beyond all of our human concepts. He is beyond really human comprehension. So anything positive that we can say about God is never going to exactly correspond to his nature. And that means that the way we know God best is essentially by the way of negation, saying that he is not 
say, bound by space as we are, right? He is not physical like we are. And certainly those elements of theology are things that certainly scripture affirms. There is absolutely a sense in which when we speak about God, any human language that we do have to, to try to approach the divine is none of it is, is going to perfectly correspond to who God is. We're using terms that roughly relate to things about God. Theologians talk about this as being analogous. We speak in analogies. God speaks to us by way of analogies. We know this, that scripture speaks about God being able to smell or having a nose or having eyes or wings. These are all analogies that we use to understand God. So to some extent, the East is right. But I think something that you find when you start reading a lot of Eastern theology and, and spirituality. And again, it depends on who you're reading because they're all very different, but especially those who are within the tradition of an author named Pseudo Dionysius, who has a book called The Divine Names. There's such an emphasis on what God is not, whereas in a Lutheran theological approach, we are primarily going to be focused on who God has revealed himself to be in Christ. So in some ways, the difference between, say, the apophatic method and the way that we're going to be doing theology is is really one in terms of emphasis, probably more than anything else. So if you go back to, I mentioned Pseudo-Dionysius, and just for the listeners, I should explain who that is, because you're probably like, I don't know who in the world Pseudo-Dionysius is. Well, we don't really know who he is either, but he's an early Christian writer who he's claimed to be Dionysius, pseudo-Dionysius, that name comes from the fact that we don't think he actually is the Dionysius that knew the Apostle Paul, which is what some people thought at the time, or at least in the Middle Ages. But he's an early Christian writer who was very influenced by Neoplatonism. And he talks about this kind of process of knowing God better, and you come to know God better by this process of essentially negation. And in some way, the way that you know God best is through a total absence of thought. And this is reflected in uh, in the Hesychasts, which is a certain group of Eastern Orthodox monastics and a certain view of spirituality that they take, that there is this emphasis almost on coming to the end of human thought at all because we can't grasp knowledge of, of Christ. Well, Martin Luther says about Pseudo-Dionysius, he says that Pseudo-Dionysius Platonizes more than he Christianizes. Uh, in other words, he's, he follows the Neoplatonists more than he does Jesus in his writings. And as much as I, I like Plato <laughs> for many things, I think Luther is exactly right on this point, that there is a kind of Christlessness. There's not really a lot of talk about Christ or the incarnation in someone like Pseudo-Dionysius. So within the Eastern tradition, I think there are, are a variety of, of kind of approaches to God that people take. So and this is the difficulty of talking about Eastern Orthodoxy is there are so many different approaches depending on who you're reading or who you're listening to. So it's always hard to pin them down. Uh, but in a lot of approaches, I think that the focus is not what it should be on the the revelation of the person of Christ as the place where we ultimately come to know God, which is, as Lutherans, that's always going to be our starting point is in the person of Jesus. Are you saying that there's no place for kind of the God is not approach in doing theology. No, there absolutely is a place for it. And scripture certainly does it. I mean, we're, we're told repeatedly throughout scripture that God is not this or God is, is not that. So God is not a man that he should repent, for example, right? So we're not saying that there is no place for that, that kind of apophatic theology. But 
it's maybe more of a question of what is the the ultimate way? What's the the most important essential way that we knew who God is? And we would say that that's centered in the person of Christ and in the revelation of of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. So while we certainly will say that that kind of negative theology, yeah, it has its place, but the the revelation of God in Christ is where we center our knowledge of God. Is that tied together with more generally speaking orthodoxy's tendency toward mysticism? Yeah, so the Eastern Orthodox Church is self-consciously mystical, very much so. So oftentimes it's, they refer to their theology as kind of mystical theology or, or mystical spirituality. And there is an emphasis in Eastern spirituality on really kind of inwardness, encounters with God, the experience that one has with God. There is definitely a valuing of the monastic way of life above ordinary ways of life because it's the monastic way of life that is the way of union with God. It's the way of contemplation, the way of theosis, because uh, you are able to spend time in that kind of mystical contemplation and have these mystical encounters with God. Now, I want to say mysticism itself is such a difficult term because it's used to affirm so many different things. So if you look, for example, at Martin Luther's theological influences, Luther cites John Towler all the time, or Bernard of Clairvaux, or, or the Theologia Germanica. Those are maybe Luther's three biggest influences theologically, along with Augustine. And all three of them were considered mystics. So it's not what I'm differentiating between the Eastern mysticism and a kind of Lutheran spirituality. It's not that Luther or the Lutheran tradition in general doesn't believe that there's such a thing as experience, but our spirituality has to be founded first and foremost on the objective work of Christ in the assurance that comes through the objective work of Christ. I don't kind of hang my hat on my inward spiritual experiences, especially because those can be explained as, you know, all sorts of different things. All sorts of people have all sorts of experiences. But the East is really going to kind of center on that inwardness of theosis, that inwardness of mystical contemplation of God. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. We're answering the question why he's not Eastern Orthodox. We'll get into something that he calls Neoplatonic theosis next. Lutheran talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Memoria Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Have you ever pondered the limits of archaeology? What can it tell us? What can't it tell us? Well, Dr. David Adams takes up this topic in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness, where he discusses the fact that archaeology ultimately doesn't prove anything. It simply gives us the facts that have to be interpreted. 
To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. The Biblical Worldview Conference is Saturday, November 4th in Chicago. This year's theme is, For Such a Time as This, Discernment, Boldness, and Compassion. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will be speaking on gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and sharing Christ in a woke culture. For more information, visit worldviewchicago.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference, November 4th in Chicago, worldviewchicago.org. The Faith, Once for All, Delivered to the Saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Beautiful Savior Lutheran, Milton, Washington. Emmaus Lutheran, Redmond, Oregon. Grace Lutheran, McPherson, Kansas. Emmanuel Lutheran, Iowa Falls, Iowa. Mount Calvary Lutheran, Brady, Texas. Peace Lutheran, Chehalis, Washington. Redemption Lutheran, Battle Creek, Michigan. St. John Lutheran, Springfield, Pennsylvania. St. Paul Lutheran, Sevierville, Tennessee. And Trinity Lutheran, Tryon, North Carolina. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org Click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking Eastern Orthodoxy with Dr. Jordan Cooper, Executive Director of Just and Sinner, creator and host of a YouTube video called Five Reasons I Am Not Eastern Orthodox. You mentioned before the ancient Greek philosopher Plato, and one of your objections to Eastern Orthodoxy has to do with what you call Neoplatonic theosis. What is it? Yeah, sure. So to be clear, I don't think Neoplatonism is is all bad in its influence on, on theology. I mean, St. Augustine is often considered a Neoplatonist. I think Luther takes some significant ideas from Platonism as well. So Neoplatonism, just to explain what that is exactly, is, you know, Plato is the ancient Greek philosopher, the founder of Western philosophy, really. And Neoplatonism is a way to describe the Platonism, Plato's, you know, philosophy as it was developed by thinkers in the first few centuries in ancient Rome. So Plotinus is probably the most significant figure among the Neoplatonists, and St. Augustine was significantly impacted by him as well. The place where Neoplatonism, I think, affects Eastern spirituality in, in a negative way is that focus on the, the inwardness. And if, if you read Plotinus, who, as I said, was the most significant Neoplatonic philosopher, Plotinus spoke about God as who he calls the one. And there is this, this kind of ecstatic experience that he claimed that he had with God or the one where there is this kind of mystical, ecstatic union with the one, union with the source of being that, that we could achieve in life. And so the goal of philosophy in some ways was this mystical contemplation of that one that would bring us into this kind of deep spiritual experience with him. So the general consensus when you read Pseudo-Dionysius, 
of, of scholars is Dionysius is very clearly in the Neoplatonic school. So very much like Plotinus. And as I said, you know, Augustine could be the same way, but Augustine is, is more Christ-focused than someone like Pseudo-Dionysius is. So he kind of takes over, Pseudo-Dionysius does, some of those practices trying to reach that ecstatic union with the one from Plotinus and kind of Christianizes it. And so there is this, what Luther would probably refer to, at least to some extent, as enthusiasm, uh, an emphasis on the, we, we need to find union with God in terms of our inner experience, rather than centering in our union with God on the objective work of Christ and, and him being given to us through the means of grace. So what's this notion of theosis? Yeah, so theosis is, it's a term that is used to refer to becoming God or becoming like God. Now, I know saying becoming God sounds pretty wild, but essentially theosis comes from, if there's any foundational text, at least outside of the New Testament, it would be, you know, St. Athanasius is on the incarnation of the word where St. Athanasius says, famously, God became man that man might become God. And that has really become the kind of thesis statement or the definition of theosis that the rest of the church has drawn on since then. It does go back even farther, though, back to the Apostle Peter, who speaks in Second Peter about becoming partakers of the divine nature. So Peter says there is some way in which we partake of the divine nature. Now, the question is, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> How do we partake of the divine nature? So what exactly is that? How does that work itself out? And Athanasius uses, he's really expanding upon what Peter says there when he's talking about the purpose of the incarnation. Essentially, he's saying that God has become what we are through the incarnation of the Son so that we might become what God is, so we might partake of the divine nature. Now, to be clear, what Athanasius means is certainly not what's sometimes called apotheosis, which is basically what you find in Mormonism, the idea that we actually become divine beings in a literal sense. That's that's not what Athanasius is trying to say. So instead of us becoming God, we share in God. We become more like him as we are divinized. That's that's a way that they speak about theosis is also as a kind of divinization. So that we become divine in some sense. So this is a, a sharing or partaking of the nature of God in a way that transforms us. And when you're thinking about that concept of theosis, to some degree, I think everyone has to affirm theosis because scripture says we partake of the divine nature. And so I think that there is a sense in which we, we all have to grapple with this reality that scripture does say that we share in the divine nature. There's a lot of language in Paul about sharing in Christ. There's something mysterious or you might say mystical, depending on what you mean by that going on there. But Lutherans have generally categorized this kind of language under the category of what we call the mystical union where there really is this intimate indwelling sharing of the divine nature that Christians do indeed have that is part of redemption. But within the East, this is the primary way in which salvation is spoken of. So within our tradition, we talk a lot about justification, that uh, we are declared righteous because the, the righteousness of Christ his, his active obedience, obeying the law, his passive obedience, suffering vicariously on the cross, and then his resurrection, that constitutes the righteousness of Jesus that is credited to us, that covers us, that judges us righteous before God. 
we focus first there in our theology and then move to these questions of what we usually call sanctification or union with God or union with Christ or what we may call theosis. But that's all kind of grounded on that justification reality of the righteousness of Christ outside of us being counted to us. The East isn't generally really going to have much of a forensic understanding of salvation at all, anything that's kind of legal in the way that it speaks. So for the East, salvation really is theosis. So all of salvation in a way can be kind of conflated to just that participation notion that we participate in God. Just for clarity, what is the kernel of truth in the notion of theosis? So I'm certainly not opposed to the the terminology of, of theosis myself, because I've written a book, two books on it now. And, and I think that there actually is a certainly a version of theosis in our tradition, but I think it's it's distinctive from that of the East. So the truth is that through the incarnation, Jesus does bring us union with God. There's something about the incarnation that's because God became man, man might become and maybe to be a little more careful, we'd say something like man might become children of God, or we might become like God in some way. So that there is this reality that we really do have this mystery of being one with Christ. Scripture uses this language Jesus talks about, just like he's in the Father, he's also in us. So there, there is this, this divine mystery of, of how God is in us and we are in him. So there is this intimate union that we have, and as Peter says, being partakers of of the divine nature. So there certainly is, I think, absolutely truth to theosis. Like I said, I think the question is is simply, okay, well, we have this idea of being partakers of the divine nature because that's biblical, but what do we mean by it? That's where we, I think, would probably have, have the divergence, as well as the question of how does this then relate to justification, or if the East even has a theology of justification at all. That's the next question. Your objection can be the answer to that very question. Do they have a Pauline idea of justification by grace through faith for Christ's sake alone? They really don't. And this is something that I've had conversations with Orthodox priests and friends of mine who are Eastern Orthodox. And I've tried to ask a bit about justification. And the response that I usually get is that in practicality, there really isn't preaching on the doctrine of justification really at all. It's simply not central to their teaching. Now, obviously, they're going to affirm justification by faith because Paul uses the phrase justification by faith, and they, they're they not going to say what Scripture says is not real, but they just don't really have that much of a place for it in their system. So when I've asked Eastern Orthodox people that I know that are well-educated in their theology, generally, they're going to say that justification is not forensic. So that when they say what Paul means by justification is essentially just theosis. They're not going to say that there is some kind of real declaration or a forensic decree, something that says that we are declared righteous simply for Christ's sake. Instead, they're going to take Paul's language of us being justified as that we are divinized. Now, there has been this is always the difficulty with Eastern Orthodoxy. This is true anytime I talk about Eastern Orthodoxy is just that there are so many authors or parts of the church or parishes and priests that all answer some of these questions a little bit differently. So there are some in the Eastern tradition, especially those who, who follow a guy named Vladimir Lossky, who is a very well-known Eastern writer who really in some ways his writings are 
the primary thing that has led Americans into Eastern Orthodoxy. So Vladimir Lossky very much pits a, a Western, what he calls a Western view of salvation that is forensic versus this kind of theosis participatory notion. And so they're very much set against each other. And what he does is kind of set up this dichotomy as if we've got to pick. So if you're in the East, you've got to pick this participation and you just got to kind of throw out that forensic justification altogether. So the rhetoric you find with Lossky tends to be pretty prominent in a lot of Orthodox circles today that really refuses any talk of anything being forensic in any way at all. But I will say that there are some movements from Orthodox theologians that have moved toward something more like a forensic justification as well. So you will find that to some extent in some authors. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. He's answering the question why he's not Eastern Orthodox. On the other side, we'll turn to Augustine. There are at least two ways to see the Messiah's presence in the Old Testament. The chief would be the Lord's messenger. Dr. Reed Lessing, co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. The second way we see the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament would be through God's glory. Learn more about the Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713-855-2681. Pastor Will Whedon has written an article by Faith Alone in the latest online issues, etc. journal. He's answering the question of whether or not the 16th century reformer Martin Luther was innovating 
when he added the word alone to his translation of Romans chapter 3, one of the arguments that he makes is that the church fathers taught faith alone. And indeed, he quotes from Basil the Great, indeed, this is the perfect and complete glorification of God when one does not exult in his own righteousness, but recognizes oneself as lacking true righteousness to be justified by faith alone in Christ. You can read this article by Pastor Will Whedon and the entire Issues Etc. Journal absolutely free. Just go to our website, issuesetc.org, click the red subscription button on the right-hand side of the page and enter your email address, and you're subscribed to the online Issues Etc. Journal. We're answering the question, why I'm not Eastern Orthodox. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. He's executive director of Just and Sinner. Dr. Cooper, before the break, you were talking about justification and kind of the lack thereof in Eastern Orthodoxy. How does that relate to your concerns about the Church Father Augustine? Yeah, so the Eastern Orthodox Church, especially those who are influenced by Vladimir Lossky, generally are going to say that the Western Church really went off track in its following of Augustine. And it's pretty undoubted that in the Western Church, and I'm using this as broadly as I can. So <laughs> talking about Western Church, I mean, you think Roman Catholicism, you think the Reformed, Lutherans, Anglicans, really all of us in terms of our theological heritage owe more to Augustine than any other figure in the early church or the Middle Ages. Augustine really set the stage for so much of what develops in Western theology. He kind of defines the debates that we're going to have, the categories that we use. So just to give you a couple of examples here, Augustine, he writes his book De Trinitate on the Trinity, which becomes the, the primary source in the Western church that defines what an Orthodox view of the Trinity is, which is a little bit different in terms of how they view the Holy Spirit than the Eastern church. Augustine, in his debates with Pelagius, over the question of the inheriting of a sinful nature and salvation by grace, Augustine is the clearest formulator of the doctrine of original sin in the early church. Augustine is the clearest formulator of a doctrine of, of predestination, that those who are saved were elected by grace alone in eternity past and are saved by grace alone. And so those categories especially those three categories in Augustine are things that the East is going to say that the Western church went wrong in following Augustine on these issues. So the first is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If you say the Nicene Creed, you know that in our churches, we speak about the spirit who proceeds from the father and the son. So the Eastern church is going to reject that little phrase, the filioque, which is the phrase and the son. So they're going to say that the spirit only proceeds from the father. And then on the question of original sin, the East generally is not going to use the kind of language of original sin. They talk sometimes about ancestral sin. Now, what I mean by that is not that they're Pelagians. The East does not teach that we earn our salvation just by our own works. But they certainly are not going to have a as strong or clear of a doctrine of the impacts of sin, the totalizing impacts of sin on humanity from the time of conception because of Adam's transgression. And then on that question of, of predestination and its relationship to free will, the East has a very strong emphasis on synergy. 
synergism, the cooperation of the human will and God. So it's very clear in Eastern theology that salvation is a process that has worked both through God and through the human will. Whereas those who follow in more in Augustine's line of thoughts, which I would say certainly is just Paul's line of thought, is going to say that, no, our human will does not play a role in our salvation, but that is the work of God through the Holy Spirit as he works to the means of grace. So on each of those points, the East really departs from Augustine. And I simply think that Augustine was right on those issues. I think there's a reason why the Western church relied so heavily on Augustine on these issues, because I think Augustine was just a good scholar and and he knew his scripture very well. Does orthodoxy have any use for Augustine? Yeah, so Augustine is, is used by Eastern orthodoxy to some extent. They do refer to him as Blessed Augustine, not usually Saint Augustine. So he doesn't even get the saint title <laughs> that he gets in the West. So let me give you just one example of an area that I've looked into a bit researching how the Eastern Church takes Augustine. And that is the question of the Holy Spirit, the filioque, the, the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So you'll get kind of two different attitudes in the East. The one attitude is that Augustine was wrong and nobody should follow Augustine, a very negative view. There is another view out there, though, that says that actually Augustine was more like the East and he didn't believe in the filioque either. So so there is some attempt on some of the Orthodox to even try to defend Augustine to say he really agrees with them. So I would say that in general, though, Augustine has some role in their theology. I mean, he's a significant figure for everybody, but he certainly doesn't have the kind of centrality or importance that he has in the Western church. Your final reason why you're not Eastern Orthodox has to do, and this is both a theological and historical question, the role of images. Yeah, so the role of images, this this is something that the East really centers on. And just to give you an example of this, I'm involved in college ministry, working at, at Cornell University, and we recently had a, an event where a lot of the student groups get together, and it was the, the Lutheran student group was right next to the Eastern Orthodox student group, and they were very nice, and it was good to talk to them. But overhearing some of their conversations with students that were going over to them, kind of asking questions about what they believed, it seemed like they just kept bringing up icons. <laughs> and it was just amazing to me. It was interesting to me to listen to the centrality of that. You know, when they're talking to people about what they believe, you know, they're talking about the importance of icons and and the miracles they attribute to icons. So it was just an interesting experience to see that it really does play this really central role in the way that they think about their faith. So the Eastern view, the icon, so the icon is is basically the, the kind of flat painting of the saints or of Jesus. And those, those, I mean, they're the Eastern looking pictures. They're not super realistic looking. They're not supposed to be. And I have icons too. I think the art is beautiful and I think there's a place in our spirituality for them. But for the East, there is a kind of sacramental character to those things, those icons. Sometimes the language is used that they are windows to heaven so that there is something supernatural about icons. And there's even kind of necessity of iconography in their piety. Like everyone has to have icons because that's part of your spirituality. There's a lot of kissing of icons. Every Orthodox family has icons in their home. And I think there are problems both theologically and historically with that kind of use of icons. Now, theologically, I would say that 
I'm not opposed to images, right? The Lutheran tradition is not opposed to using images in any sense. The Reformed tradition is, uh, they're iconoclast, means they don't believe in using images and worship at all. And I think that that view is very much mistaken, especially just on biblical grounds. We have things like the cherubim or in the Ark of the Covenant. They were commanded by God, and that's at the center of Israelite worship. So it can't simply be that any statuary or any imagery is, is wrong in the context of worship, but it has to be used in the proper sense and for the right reasons. So when you get the, the Eastern theology, now you're moving far beyond anything that scripture says, but there's nothing in the New Testament that tells us that we need to have images or that there is some kind of sacramental efficacy in some way that is that is tied to images. So while I think images are a good tradition, they can be helpful, they can kind of set your heart and mind in the right place. In terms of that kind of veneration or, or attributing some kind of sacramental efficacy to them, I think it's, it's going far beyond what scripture says. But it also goes far beyond the evidence that we have in the early church. The East is often going to make the claim that the first ever icon was painted by St. Luke. Now that has no historical basis whatsoever. There's no reason to think that there was some kind of image that was painted by St. Luke that became an icon. So when you look at the evidence of the early church, what you don't find, and this is like for a few centuries, this is for a significant period of time, is you just don't find veneration of images. You do find some early Christian images. The earliest images that we have, though, are very different from what you think of as icons. They were largely symbols that represented things. So we see the Cairo, or the earliest images of Jesus are actually just an image of a shepherd. So it kind of symbolizes Jesus as the good shepherd. It's not really painted in the same way that a Eastern Orthodox icon would be. But I think more telling than that is that when you read the early Christian apologists, so you read someone like Justin Martyr, these early Christians actually criticize the pagan religions for needing images in their worship. And they say that in Christian worship, you know, they don't even have any images. They don't, they don't need them because their God is not limited to images. They can't really capture his, his essence because he's greater than that. Now, what I don't think you need to do from that is to say, well, that means that all the early Christians thought images were terrible or you couldn't use them at all. But what is very clear is that they certainly were not at the center of worship, that we have multiple testimonies of people like Justin or Athenagoras is another one, I think Tatian as well, who all say that they don't have images in their worship services. So in many places of worship, there aren't any images at all, and they certainly didn't see them as necessary. So I would say that both on just scriptural grounds, but also on historical grounds, the Eastern view that elevates images to the degree that they do to veneration of images or this kind of sacramental-ish efficacy of images is just going far beyond what is merited by the evidence. So finally, why are you a confessional Lutheran and not Eastern Orthodox? Yeah, why am I confessional Lutheran? Well, the reason I'm a confessional Lutheran instead of Eastern Orthodox or really anything else is the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel in, in Lutheran theology and practice. I just simply don't think that any other tradition captures what the Lutheran tradition does in its focus on Christ for you, the, the Christ-centric lens through which Lutherans look at all of their life and all of their spirituality, all of their piety really is, I think it's unique in the world of, of Christendom. And I think it's really being biblical. <laughs> so the centrality of Christ, the centrality of grace and the means of grace, 
as well as the primacy of scripture that we emphasize in our tradition, I think are the reasons really why I became Lutheran and why I remain Lutheran. Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Just and Sinner, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including Christification, a Lutheran Approach to Theosis, and creator and host of the YouTube video titled Five Reasons I Am Not Eastern Orthodox. You'll find links to this video and to Justin Sinner on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Dr. Cooper, thank you. Thank you. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part today by LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. Lutheran Church Missouri Senate Chaplains deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families, serving those who serve. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces, lcms.org slash armedforces. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss sexuality and identity in our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor, and we'll talk with Dr. Ken Sherb about basic steps for congregations in evangelism. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Invited to October Fiesta Friday night, September 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. October Fiesta features authentic Mexican cuisine, desserts from Cruda Bakery, a festive mariachi band, and of course, plenty of Mexican beverages. Tickets are $25. Proceeds benefit St. Paul Lutheran School, the only classical Lutheran school in Greater St. Louis. Learn more at school.stpaulhamill.org. October Fiesta is sponsored in part by Ernst Heating and Cooling, Alton Memorial Hospital, Vallow Floor Coverings, Seavers Equipment, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, Baker Construction, Bunker Hill Chiropractic, and Lutheran Public Radio. October Fiesta, Friday night, September 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. School.stpaulhamill.org.